0: darkness it's not a place that we typically like to be it's disorienting it's discouraging it's associated with death and depression and defeat where imagination can run wild where fear and doubt arise where evil often gains a foothold. And yet, darkness is the birthplace of hope. All that's necessary is one small light to begin the birth process. One small light begins the reorientation One small light begins the resurgence of courage. One small light begins the rebuilding of faith and the resurrection of hope. In the darkness, our attention is immediately drawn to light. And that is the attribute of hope. The prophet Isaiah writes, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark, a light will shine upon them. That's the message of hope. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be here a good bit of the time this morning, back and forth, into other passages as passages as well, but we're going to return here often. Advent is a curious word, isn't it? It's not... Typically used in our language. But Advent simply means the coming or the arrival of, the heralding of someone very special. And for us, it is the preparation of the coming of Jesus. It's a royal arrival. That's what Advent is. And this morning, as we dig into the scripture, we're going to connect. The promises, the prophecies of the Old Testament to the New Testament revelation of just who Jesus is. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to remember that you indeed are the hope of the earth. You are the hope of the world. And this morning, as we study your scripture, we pray that it would come alive to us, that it would impact us deeply. Jesus, we know that we are a people who are in need of hope, but too often we, we um, act as if we're not. I pray this morning that you would open our eyes, that we would understand with greater clarity just how profound the hope of Jesus is to us, and it's in his name that we pray, amen. Isaiah chapter nine is a a beautiful prophecy. We know it as a messianic prophecy, but it has context, and I'd like for us to think a bit about that context. It goes something like this. There once was a king who arrogantly ignored the counsel of wise men, even those who spoke with great authority. He purposed in his heart to do only what he wanted to do despite the warnings that were given to him. He presumed to ignore the statutes and the laws and the customs that had governed the people that he ruled. Those laws and custom had governed the people for Hundreds of years. He despised those that tried to redirect him and led his nation into a season of great darkness, defeat, and despair. His name was Ahaz. Ahaz was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. After the the united kingdom of Israel was split into two, Judah was the southern kingdom. Ahaz is short for Jehoaz, or Yahweh has held. Ahaz is remembered as an evil king. In 2 Kings chapter 16, we read that Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done, but he walked In the way of the kings of Israel, that is the northern kings, and and even made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. He sacrificed and burns incense to the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. In other words, he took on the pagan rituals of the people who inhabited the land north of Jerusalem. We know that land in in biblical times was known as Samaria. And many of the uh, customs of the people that once lived there became the customs of even Jerusalem the people of Israel. Immediately upon his ascension to the throne, Ahaz was confronted by armies from the Northern Kingdom, that is Israel and Damascus or Syria. And again, as recorded in 2 Kings 16, Aram, which is Syria, Damascus, it goes by those three, those three different names, all the same place and the northern kingdom, these two kingdoms uh, joined together to besiege Jerusalem. And why did they do that? They wished to compel Judah, Ahaz, the king of Judah, to join them in a coalition against an, an enemy that was much larger than all three of them put together. That enemy was Assyria. I'd like for you to take note. This, this map uh, describes the Middle East, and you can see in, in red letters, modern-day Middle East. And that green area up there is where the kingdom of Assyria was located. It included, it included eventually uh, portions of Iraq, southern Turkey, Syria, and even then down into Israel. Let's go to the next map. We find here the kingdoms, the two kingdoms, the separated kingdoms of Israel. To the north there in the, the blue is the northern kingdom. To the south there we see the kingdom of Judah. And up then to the north and to the east you see the kingdom of Aram or Damascus. Now. The kingdom of Aram and the kingdom of Israel are the two that came against the kingdom of Judah. They were wishing to bring for their forces together. Let's go to the next map. To hold back the kingdom of Assyria, which is there in the purple. That's during the time of, of Isaiah the prophet. Eventually, Assyria would in Engulf that entire region there in green. You'll note that it includes Syria, Aram, that, that area there, as well as the northern kingdom. That's who we are talking about. That's what happened here. This is the context of this scripture that we're reading this morning in which, in which we read about the messianic hope. The prophet Isaiah counsels Ahaz to trust God rather than foreign allies and tells him to ask for a sign, ask for a sign to confirm that God's word is true. So the Lord himself says, the Lord will give you a sign in Isaiah chapter seven. You can flip back there if you want. Isaiah chapter seven, beginning in verse 10. It says, then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Notice the Lord spoke to Ahaz saying, ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it, make it deep as Sheol or as high as the heaven. <laughs> He's saying, ask for a sign, Ahaz, because I want to give it to you. It can be as big and deep and wide as you wish because I want to I make sure you understand this. But Ahaz said, I will not ask for a sign, nor will I test the Lord. Wait a second. Who's asking Ahaz to ask for a sign? It's the Lord himself, right? And Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. God wanted to reassure Ahaz that he had his royal He had his royal company in his hand. He had the the nation of Judah in his hand. Going on then, then he, that is Isaiah said, listen now, O house of David, that's Ahaz, listen up, Ahaz, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Dude, do you know who you're talking to? That's, who, that's Isaiah's word to Ahaz. Going on, he says, this is the sign that God will give. Beginning in verse 14, the second half of that. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. We know that name, right? Emmanuel, what does it mean? God with us. God with us. That's the sign that God desires to give. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. Wait a second. That's exactly what Ahaz doesn't know, right? He will will know enough He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Wow. So Ahaz, to protect himself from those northern nations, called on the aid of guess who? Their common enemy, Assyria. Can you imagine that? Ahaz has the goal to say no to his northern, uh, northern adversaries and no to God himself and chooses to seek the aid of Assyria. And not only that, he gave the king of Assyria treasures and not just any treasure. Treasure from the temple, the dwelling place of God. He took the treasury of the temple and gave part of it to the Assyrian king. In 2 Kings chapter 16, we read, So Ahaz sent messengers to the king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and deliver me from the hand of the king of Aram, or Syria, and from the hand of the king of Israel, who are rising up against me. Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. So he has now joined himself with the enemy. The Assyrians captured Damascus or Syria and then they attacked Israel and deported the people to Assyria. They became their slaves. This invasion, this war lasted for about two years. And through Assyria's intervention and as a result of its invasion and subjection of the king of Damascus and the king of Israel, Ahaz was relieved. He was relieved of his troublesome northern neighbors. But as a result, his protector, Assyria, claimed authority over him. This appeal to Assyria met with some stern opposition from the prophet Isaiah who counseled Ahaz to rely upon God. Rely upon the Lord, not upon outside aid. The sequel, what happened afterwards, quite honestly, seems to justify Ahaz and condemn the prophet Isaiah, why do I say that? Well, because of the rest of Ahaz's reign, he was free from trouble from his northern neighbors. Hmm, Free from trouble from his northern neighbors who were taken into slavery in Assyria. But this is the cost. Ahaz yielded readily he yielded readily to the glamour and the prestige of the Assyrians in religion as well as his politics. He went to Damascus to swear homage to the king of Assyria. And while he was there, he saw this altar. He just fell in love with this altar. And so he decided, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem and I'm going to build a replica of that altar. Guess who that altar was made for? A pagan god. And guess where Ahaz built that altar? In the temple of the Lord. An altar to a pagan god in the temple of the Lord. And along with it, all of the pagan rituals that go with it. Furthermore, Ahaz built an astrological observatory with with all of the accompanying pagan sacrifices after the fashion of the ruling people there. He even remodeled the temple simply because the king of Assyria asked him to. Now, in all of that, Ahaz completely, completely degraded the worship of almighty God in Jerusalem. 2 Kings 16 again records that Ahaz even offered his son through the fire. What does that mean? He offered his son to the idol Moloch. Burn him alive. That's how low this has gone. His government is considered as having been disastrous for Judah. And a large part of the reforming work of his son, Hezekiah, was aimed at undoing all of what he did. Ahaz died at the age of 36 and was succeeded by his son, Hezekiah, whom we know to be a good king. And why do we know that? Um, Because... He did not participate in the practices of his father. In fact, he did not even bury his father with the other kings of Judah. He wouldn't wouldn't honor him that way. Hmm. In fact, Hezekiah ordered the demolition of the things that Hezekiah had built in the temple. And it took them all of 16 days to do it. I'm telling you, they were on it, weren't they? Yeah. And this is the context that we read here in Isaiah chapter 9, this prophecy that we've come to know as a messianic prophecy look at it with me begin verse 2 Isaiah chapter 9 the people who walk in darkness will see a great light and those who live in a dark land the light will shine upon them you see the the arrogant dismissal of God's authority the irreverent perversion of worship, the defilement of that which is holy, is described as darkness in this prophecy. King Ahaz's rule was the definition of the destruction of light, if you will. the definition of darkness. Yet here, in the middle of this darkness smack dab in the middle of this darkness comes the promise of light why here why then in the middle of this darkness uh, the promise of light well again in the darkness our attention is drawn to the light isn't it that's where our attention goes that's the attribute of hope it's like a light in the darkness in the light a single candle can be missed can be ignored but in the dark it is highlighted this season of preparation for christmas that we are in and i i i i need to tell you that that we're taking a break from the book of Mark, and that's all it is. We're taking a break from the book of Mark for the month of December so that we can really pursue what Christmas is all about. The reason for that is because in our world, um, the light of Christ can be so easily tossed aside. You know, all day long since before Thanksgiving. We've been hearing about the preparation for Christmas, and what is it? It's all about giving gifts. It's all about getting the best deal on Black Friday. Yeah. Even on the way here this morning, I heard some commentary on the radio, giving counsel on on how to buy gifts for people you don't really know very well. That's what That's what this means for us as a a culture. We've missed the the understanding that Christmas is about Jesus. Because quite honestly, we're living in the light, right? Hey, everything's perfect. The economy's humming right along. It's a great day to be in the USA, right? All things are well. That's what we believe, that's how we live. And yet, hey, let me tell you, just in this week's news, did you notice that the life expectancy of a US citizen has declined again for the third year in a row? Why is that? Well, they attribute it to the opioid crisis. And what's that about? It's about people being addicted Addicted to a substance that they get involved with because of, who knows? Maybe it starts as pain control and then it gets out of control. And they get into this desperate place. Hmm. The news this week also included that a group of climate scientists and policy experts declared that there's just three years left just three years left to dramatically turn around our carbon emissions so that we don't end up in catastrophic failure as a planet Hmm. we all know about the devastating wildfires in california right and now they're facing floods now they're facing debris flow that can can absolutely devastate devastation upon devastation oh and did you know that friday there was an earthquake in in uh in alaska 7.0 it was a big one and it shook things pretty well left roads completely impassable wow oh and did you hear that there was a chinese scientist who who um, was a a, proud of the fact that he was able to engineer, genetically engineer a couple twins that were born. Romans chapter one, the apostle Paul writes, that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. In other words, God has revealed himself to all humanity. And yet, verse 22 professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, the glory of the incorruptible God, for an image. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen and amen. And verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And verse 32, and although they, they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. And yet everything's just fine. Because the economy's humming right along. Right? Darkness has to be seen for what it is. Acknowledged for what it is for the light to be noticed and hope to be both needed and embraced. This rehearsal of just this week's news, I have to ask you, do we need hope? Do we need hope? Yes. Yes. A double portion, please. We need hope. Hope by its very nature is focused on the future. You can see, let me ask you this. Can you see better in the light or in the dark? In the light. You can see what's right in front of you in the light, right? But it's interesting. In the dark, you can see what's far away. That which is obscured in the daylight. Think about it. In the middle of the dark, you can see for miles a city on a hill. More than that, you can see beyond this planet in the dark. And this is the context. This is, this is what God says in the middle of the darkness. There's a light coming. You see, it's the contrast that makes the difference. When darkness isn't recognized, there's there's no perceived need for any more light. One of the shortcomings of I think popular Christianity, culture, Christian culture today is, is is the seeming dismissal of the reality of sin. Jesus is a Jesus is a great guy, and he's worthy of imitation even, even worthy of worship. When we invite people to follow him we don't we 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 invite them because Jesus can make your life better. He can solve all your problems. Right? That's how we we too easily talk about Jesus and we ignore the brutal reality of sin and the necessity of the cross. Romans chapter 3 Paul writes, "For all have sinned." All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we know that verse well, don't we? But listen to what he says following that. Because justified as a gift by his grace, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Let's read that again. Being justified. I love this illustration that says, justified simply is making it just as if I'd never sinned by, by a gift given in grace. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus by the through the redemption means the buying back the paying for whom god displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith now what is propitiation it's it's the means of appeasing or compensating for paying for making up for, making amends, God displayed this propitiation in Jesus' blood. He is able, he makes things right in Jesus' blood. And this was to demonstrate his righteousness, his rightness, His rightness, his justice, because of the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. You see, God could not, God could not pass over your sin apart from the sacrifice of Jesus, apart from the shedding of his blood on our behalf. That's profound. Now, A propitiation is is used as the cover of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. What is the Ark of the Covenant? That is that it that's that holy chest, if you will, in which the, the Ten Commandments were were stored in the temple and other articles of God's magnificence and salvific or saving grace for the people of Israel. And there it is said that God dwelled. And on the top of that, there is a bench that is called the mercy seat. And once a year, the priest, the high priest goes in on the day of atonement into that holy of holies and sprinkles the blood of an animal who becomes the propitiation for the sins of the nation. That's the historical worship. And that's the idea here that the apostle Paul illuminates. That's what God has done with the blood of Jesus. And I have to say, this is the heart of the gospel. This is what it's about. Jesus didn't come just to be a great example or or someone to be admired, or even to be imitated. He came to be the sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. Until we acknowledge our need for that payment, we will not see the light that illumines the darkness. That's why the sinner's prayer, that's why the sinner's prayer, when a person comes to Christ, that prayer needs to include the understanding that they are sinful and that they can't do anything about it on their own. Understanding that is critical to understanding what salvation is. When we recognize we are, we are also the people who walk in darkness... We will see that great light, that light that brings hope even in the middle of that darkness. Hope and faith and conviction. Hope and faith and conviction. We find those three words in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And hope and faith and conviction are the three legs of a four-legged Stool. And that top of that stool is what we know as salvation. Think about it. Hope inspires faith. Faith deepens conviction. Grace delivers salvation. Now, faith is the assurance of the things that are hoped for. Hebrews 11 1-1, 1, excuse me. The Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So what is, what is the fourth leg? If those are the three legs, faith, hope, and conviction, the fourth leg has to be grace. It has to be grace. And the four together provide a sure foundation for salvation. It's interesting that the word the Hebrew name for Jesus, we heard it earlier. Andy said it kind of in passing. Maybe you didn't hear it. The Hebrew word for the name Jesus is Yeshua. Yeshua. It's taken from a Hebrew verb, yasha, that means to deliver or to save or rescue. And the Greek translation of Yeshua is Jesus, among first century Greeks of which the name Jesus is derived. Jesus, Jesus himself is our salvation. Jesus himself. He didn't just he didn't just go up to the counter and pay for our sins. Do you understand that? He didn't just pay for it out of the riches of his grace. He became the payment himself. He stepped in for us. I think too often when we hear the words that Jesus pays for our sin, it almost sounds like a casual transaction. He himself is the payment. And he is the object of our faith. He is the one we put our faith in. Jesus himself. Not, dare I say it, it's not just what he's done for us. Our faith is in him. John chapter 1. There the apostle records that in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He is the light, Jesus himself. So back to Isaiah chapter 9. Look at it with me. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. What does that mean? It means Jesus himself. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. Jesus Himself. The prophecy follows in verse six. Look at it with me. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on His shoulders. And His name, His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This this is the hope of Christmas. It's the hope of the world. It's it's a child. It's the son of God on whose shoulder will rest the government. He is the one who is going to put everything in order. He is the one who is going to speak and act in order. Absolute authority. He is the one who will bring justice. His name is Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. The vast majority of the times this word is used refers to the Lord himself and his work. And it's the nearest word in Hebrew that has the idea of the supernatural connected to it. Bringing wisdom that far exceeds any human wisdom. And the counselor, the idea of a counselor is not only to give advice, but to resolve things. I love that. Because Jesus resolves our problem. He resolves it. mighty god el gibor the implication of a of a strong and mighty warrior a champion and it's in later in chapter 10 of isaiah you can look over there if you want verse 21 we read there that the lord himself refers to him as mighty god that is Is indicative of the fact that the Messiah is not just any human. He is divine. He is God Himself. Everlasting Father. We know what the word everlasting means, right? We can't comprehend it, (laughs) but it means in perpetuity. It's something that never, never ends. And he is the everlasting Father. Our Father brings up the, the idea of care and concern and discipline. Always. And he's the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince, the Lord, the Master, the Ruler of peace he is the master the ruler and dare i say the administrator of the administer of he administers peace and this idea of peace is not what we understand in english hey peace <laughs> it's so much more than that it's the word shalom And it speaks of, it's so hard to capture it. It it speaks of an overall well being, of fulfillment, of wholeness, being absolutely complete. He's the Prince of Peace. That's who Jesus is. And He Himself is the hope of Christmas. The hope of the world, this child, this son. Look at verse 7 in chapter 9 of Isaiah with me. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, no end to the increase of his authority, his justice, his order. It's ever increasing on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever. It has a beginning point, but no ending point. And then he says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish. What does that mean? The zeal of the Lord of hosts. Well, the word zeal is, is <laughs> it's, we how do I say this? The word jealous is attached to the meaning of zeal. And we typically think of jealousy as a negative, right? But here, it's the idea of a, of a jealous husband. He's not, he, and it's not, it's not this controlling jealousy. It's absolute care and watchfulness for, completely enamored by. Protecting, desiring, pursuing. That's the zeal of the Lord for you. Desiring, pursuing, protecting, watching over. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this because he loves. Because he loves us, because he loves those who walk in darkness, even us. Again, if you recognize you're in the dark, you confess your need of God. Those who walk in darkness, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish those who walk in darkness and see a great light. They need to see a great light. Only God can provide that light. And they respond to his zealous love. His personal, sacrificial, zealous love. Because he made the payment for our sin. It's that zealous. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish the uncovering of the light, even in the midst of the darkness. That's the wonder of Christmas. That's what we are celebrating. That's why we're taking these weeks to prepare. It's not just this cultural gift-giving thing. It's about Jesus, the light of the world. If, you, if there's anybody here this morning who's never connected with Jesus as being your salvation, he himself, if you recognize that you're in darkness, as we all should, If you recognize that, but you've never reached out and said, Jesus, I need you to make things right in my life. This morning is the time to do that. Don't neglect the opportunity. Last night, a young man came forward and said, I'm in darkness. What a revelation. Yeah. And when we get there, God is eager. He's zealous. He's zealous to bring the light. The hope of the world. Would you pray with me? In fact, would you stand? Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for um, it, it, it seems almost too casual to, to say thank you for bringing the light, turning the light on, because there's so much more involved, Lord. Thank you for the revelation that we're in the dark without you. Thank you as well, Lord Jesus, that you are the one who who pays for you yourself are the payment for our sin you are the one who makes it all right makes it right the way it should be and apart from you lord we cannot even hope to live in righteousness lord our desire this morning is to is to Allow the reality of who you are to impact us, even in this season, perhaps especially in this season. Again, if there's anyone here who has never made that commitment to Jesus, to say to him, I know I'm a sinner, I know. I'm in the dark and I desperately need the light of Christ. I need his payment for my sin. That's you this morning, don't put it off. Today is the day of salvation. As we sing, I invite you, if you desire prayer, if it's for that decision, fine. If it's other than that, feel free to come forward. There will be people up front here to pray with you. Let's worship the Lord.